So I just want to thank Rosemary so much for agreeing to lead today's session, which is on the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Just a small, a small topic <laughs> that she had to prepare for. So we're really, really grateful that Rosemary is going to be here sharing her wisdom and insights into that. So Rosemary, if I can just pray with you. Father God, we just thank you for the opportunity to learn more about you, God, to to learn more about Jesus. And I just pray for Rosemary now as she shares what she's been studying and learning with us, God. I pray you give her clarity of mind, God, just to uh, convey, convey the knowledge that she has, God. I pray for us that we have open hearts and open minds to receive all that you want to share with us this morning. Yeah, I just pray you equip Rosemary by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Uh, You've given me an amazing topic uh, to talk on. You also gave me um, an outline, which was not my outline, which is good because it keeps me on track, but which is challenging because it keeps me on track. (laughs) Um, and, uh, so, yeah, um, and I want to say, um, it's, it's a huge privilege to be sharing with you guys. It's wonderful to be sharing with people I know well and who I know love me (laughs) and we love and serve God together. Um, that's a huge privilege and a huge responsibility and... Um, if I'm totally imperfect, which is always very possible, then I know that you will forgive me and you will take, uh, from what I've been working on, um, what is, um, what is of value and I'm sure you'll have many, many questions. Um, this is the, the story of Jesus. I reckon I've been reading for well over 55 years (laughs) and I feel like now there's more questions than there were to start with some things become much clearer and some things um, just leave more questions more mysteries to plumb so I don't have all the answers but you don't either so And some of, some of you have worked um, through from, from the beginning, um, from the story of God, from the beginning, from, from Genesis. And the story that unfolds through the Old Testament is of God meeting with his people and God revealing himself to his people and God speaking to his people and his people failing. Um, but... Now things take a different turn. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, our ancestors, by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of of his nature. So 
Jesus is coming into the world and suddenly knowing about God takes on a whole new uh, a, a whole new aspect and uh, I want to say that the the story the story of Jesus which we read in the the four gospels and which we get bits of in the rest of the new testament i want i want you to realize that every time stories and accounts are told they'll come in different ways um i've been to several funerals recently and we've got a wedding coming up and i was just thinking about telling the story of somebody's life on different occasions and uh, many of you here are married and if you remember those days when uh, your life um, was heading towards marriage and you started sharing the good news about your growing relationship, the way you told your grandma would be different from the way you told your best friend. And you would choose different parts of the story to tell. The story that the bridegroom tells in his wedding speech um, in public may not quite be, in every detail, the same emphasis he would give at a different time. And I've heard some beautiful stories of long marriages being told at funerals this month. People who were married like my mum and dad in 1955. And they've looked back and they've told that story. And the things they've highlighted from a distance from time... Uh, is very different. And I just offer that to you as an image of when we read different things about Jesus in different parts of the Bible, that there's always a time perspective and there's always a person perspective uh, and what stood out in that context. And if you think about telling grandma about your romance and telling your best mate, there are things you need to explain to grandma that you don't need to explain to your best mate because they've understood them in context. Your best mate might have been there on that occasion when your eyes met across the room. Okay, so that's just an image to, to hold for, for the different ways of telling, telling the story of Jesus, okay? Um, the, how many Gospels are there? Four. What are they? And if I tell you three are pretty close to one another and one's quite different, which is the one that's quite different? John. Okay. Uh, and I'm actually going to start by reading um, from John because John and all the Gospels in different ways give, give away from the beginning who they're actually going to talk about. But uh, you'll know that John uh, starts very differently. Who has a Christmas story in their gospel? Which two? Luke, Luke and Matthew. Matthew. Where'd you get shepherds? Where'd you get wise men? Where'd you get a virgin? Both. Yeah, trick question. <laughs> and you don't get any of that in Mark. Um, at all. Mark leads straight in, but he tells us it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. But this is how 
John starts. Who's got uh, John chapter 1 there? Uh, Holly, go on then. NIV's good. Uh, one, uh, let's have one, two, five to start with. Uh, Okay, Benga, carry on. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that life so that through him all might believe. He himself was not a light. He came only as a witness to the light. Who wants to carry on? Caroline? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one that I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in perfect relationship with the Father, has made him known. Okay. Can I have, can I have the first... Sorry, making Christy jump about. Oh, sorry, Christy. Yes, please. I have, sorry, Christy. Oh. I don't think that's the first slide. Okay, yeah, and we'll, we'll perhaps come back to that. Next one, please. Yeah, well, so we're, we're finding out about God only if we take the risk of looking at Jesus himself. And the next one. No one, God, no one has ever seen. The only son by nature, God, who is ever close to the Father's heart, has brought knowledge of him. So, um, so John is saying from the beginning, John is identifying um, Jesus who comes, totally identifying Jesus with God. But that amazing verse that we had, verse 14, the word became flesh and lived with us. There's a famous translation in the message. Who, who, who can remember? It's very uh, moved into the neighborhood. The word became flesh 
and moved into the neighbourhood. The word took flesh and blood, a real person with skin on, and came and lived right here amongst us. Uh, But there's this mysterious word, word. Why does, why does John refer to Jesus as the Word? Uh, what's he saying when he's talking about Jesus as the Word? Um, when you think about the Word in the Bible, in the Old Testament, what does it normally mean? The Torah, the the the, the law, the uh, what the the word that came through Moses. Yep. What about if the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah? The the voice of God. Okay, he hears from God. He gets a message from God. He knows what God is saying. He's got something uh, to talk about. Uh, but. Uh, but the, uh, the Old Testament also talks about, uh, in Genesis, about God speaks and what happens? He creates. Uh, and it picks up again in the Psalms that it's by the mouth of the Lord the world was made. God speaks and it happens. Um, there, there are ways in which human speech achieves something. If I say, I now pronounce you husband and wife, something's changed. Something's changed. So even human speech can enact something. Gemma, you're frowning at me. Okay. <laughs> okay. So God regularly acts, God regularly acts, and especially he did in Genesis, in creation, by speaking. And uh, often through the Old Testament, uh, God gives a word, and it comes to be. Somebody got an example of that? God gives a word, and it comes to be. The plagues, right, great example. Um, for, the, for those who might not have been there on that day, just unpack a bit what you mean. Right. God threatens, if you don't obey, this will happen. Here's your warning. Obey me. Let my people go. Uh, if you don't... Uh, I will send disaster upon you in the form of frogs, for example. And, and so he had his choice, uh, but God's word came to be. God spoke, frogs came. Great example, yeah. <coughs> so what God promises that happens, that's part of the background of who is What is the word? God has always worked by his word. Um, But is is God's word separate from God's being? No. Is what I say different from my character? 
Hope not. <laughs> Hope not. Yeah. Um, so when, when, when John's writing about when God chooses that word, he's got all that Genesis background, all that Old Testament background to God speaking. But he's also an amazing communicator. Uh, and he's straddling. Remember his audience. Are you talking to grandma or your best mate? He's straddling his audience. He wants everyone to understand something. And he also knows that people who are not Jewish, people who don't have Old Testament background, people who come from um, a, a Greek philosophical background, they have thought about the word. Now I need to read this because otherwise I shan't get it right. Uh, So some of these pagan Greek philosophers talked about a, a kind of principle of rationality, which was at the heart of the whole universe. So they weren't, uh, they weren't believers in God in that sense, but by philosophy, they had come to a theory that said there's something at the heart of the universe which is holding it all together and which is, uh, which is key to all human beings. And they said, these Greek philosophers, if you get in touch with what that is, that word principle, then you'll really understand the universe. So John, in saying the word for Jesus, he's both tapping into <laughs> Jewish history how God's always spoken and behaved, how God's spoken in creation. And he's also tapping into um, pagan ideas. So he's reaching out with a message which is universal because Jesus is for everyone. And he's, he's found a language that's going to, uh, going to mean something and by which he can convey something. Uh, to everyone. Let, next slide. So through him, through the word, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So he's talking about the words who we know better as Jesus, he's talking about the word who's, who was there right at the beginning. And in fact, if you noticed, in the beginning was the word. Anybody know another book that begins in the beginning? Genesis. And that's no coincidence. That is no coincidence. In the beginning, in the beginning. Uh, John is rooting everything way back in creation. No Christmas story, because it doesn't just start with a virgin. It goes right back to the beginning, when Jesus was there with the Father. And <coughs> so if... if if Jesus is there with the Father, who is Jesus? Jesus is there with the Father, who is Jesus? The Son. 
Jesus is the Son. And we've had, um, if you could just go back one. No one has ever, God, no one has ever seen. I like this emphasis. Have, have, you seen, have you seen God with your eyes? No. But walking around Judea, walking around Galilee, walking around Jerusalem, there were people who saw Jesus. And so the only son, by nature God, who's ever close to the Father's heart, has revealed him, has made him known. You've learned about God from the prophets. You've learned about God from a book. You've learned about God from the law. You've heard. But now there are people who have seen. And they're the eyewitnesses who are sharing the story of Jesus. He's son of the father. Um, now, we've got some fathers and sons here. Well, we've got one father and son here this morning. And we've got parents and children here this morning. Uh, so we think we know quite a lot about what it is to be a father and what it is to be a son. But there are some things about being a father <coughs> which are not necessarily in this image. And there are some things about being a son which are not necessarily in this image. And in particular, if you share the gospel with Muslims, who knows what offends them about talking about father and son? Yeah, but why is it offensive? Right. Say that again. Right. 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 Right, exactly. So, uh, Muslims worry, and maybe some other people worry, that you're talking about a sexual relationship that created Jesus. Now, we've already seen that Jesus wasn't created. He was there right in the beginning. And now this this concept of father and son goes very deep, but it's certainly not about making babies in, in that way. Uh, the, uh, the, story of, the story of the virgin certainly says, um, I believe in the virgin birth, uh, but it certainly says that there was not a sexual act which brought Jesus to Bethlehem. Okay? But that when, when it talks about father and son through the scriptures, it's not, it's not making that point. It's not saying Jesus was born from a, a sperm that came from God. Okay. What is it saying? Old Testament. Okay, keep going. Okay, yeah, let's look at this. Sorry, I've skipped over this. God exercises his own singular divine activity in creating the world and does so by means of his own word. Through him all things were made. God does not need the help of another to create the world, but instead works through his own sovereign 
words. So in creation, when John's gospel says all things were made through him, it's not that God sat back and folded his arms and said, okay, you get on with it. It's that they are at one. So God speaks and says, let there be light. God speaks and says, uh, let animals spring forth. And the word by which he's creating is the eternal word, is who is now being revealed in flesh. Mind-blowing, isn't it? It is mind-blowing. There is nothing else like this. But this is the claim that John's gospel is making. Okay. Father and son. Okay. Uh, Some very interesting um, research, somebody who's really drilled down into Old Testament concepts of families, says these are the the three key things about being a father. So um, Eddie and uh, Rob and Benga and Andy, let's see if this applies in our our culture. (coughs) I don't know. Father is the source or origin of a family. Yes. Yes, with a mother, uh, who as founding father provides an inheritance to his children. Maybe? They can only hope. Okay. Number two, a father protects and provides for his children. Question, Does that, do, you, do you provide for Christy? You do. Okay, on an ongoing basis. Do you provide for Christy in the same way that you did when he was four? Okay, so in our culture, fathers might step back and say you're on your own chum in a good way or a bad way, yeah? Um, But we probably think it's appropriate for somebody, somebody of Christy's age to be doing some providing for himself, We probably would be a bit worried if he wasn't. Okay. Number three, obedience and honor are due to the father. You can pay me afterwards. (laughs) So that, those are the key, the key three things about being a father in Old Testament culture. So therefore, a son owes his Uh, identity to his father. He expects an inheritance from his father. He expects to be protected and provided for by his father. And he expects at all times to obey and honor his father throughout his life. Throughout his life. And I suggest to you that that may be a little different from our cultural picture of father and son. <laughs> okay. The honor and the delight in doing what the father is doing. Uh, and we see a lot of that in, in Jesus. In fact, we see it throughout um, the life of Jesus. We'll come back to this. Okay. <coughs> 
Um, I, I, think it, I, think it's time for, um, I think it's time for a stretch. Stand up and have a stretch. Right. Okay. Three, two, one, sit down. I don't know whether you heard what Benga just just said. Let's say it again, Benga. In African culture, you're still supposed to obey the that even if you don't Because uh, what I said was that even people go back to oracles to find out what their dad they want them to do, even the dad is there, they do their back. Right. Okay. I think that's really helpful, and I think that reminds us that we need to be trying to trying to find out what these things mean in the Bible, and not assuming. So, something like father and son, we so easily we assume we know all about fathers and sons. Um, but there is there is more uh, there is more to grasp. Um, the heading that I was um, working working th- through there, scary one that says Trinity, creation, and humanity are eternally bound in Jesus. Trinity, creation, and humanity are eternally bound in Jesus. And I want to say something I just noticed. Again, we've talked about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. We talked about in the beginning God created heaven and earth. If you think back to Genesis chapter 1, what's the high point of Genesis chapter 1? Those days of creation, and you get to the final day of creation, and what's the high point? Creation of of man, human beings. And God saw that it was very good, very good. And as Genesis chapter 1 moves to the climax of the creation of humanity John's prologue moves to the climax of and the word became flesh so there's one human being that is the climax of 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 John chapter 1 so where Genesis moves towards one one human being Adam this moves towards one human being Jesus I thought that was quite cool I thought that was quite cool point C that I've got I've got given Jesus recapitulates the story of Adam and Israel recapitulates just means revisits if you've done something if you had a task to do like uh, set up a prayer station 
And it was the first time you'd done it. I'm not looking at anybody in particular. I've made this up. This, this relates to no, no living people who may have made any mistakes at any time. <laughs> if, you'd, uh, if you'd been given a task to do, like doing a prayer station, it was it had, had some good points, but it also had a lot of work needing doing. And you had a chance to redo it, revisit that task, almost like rewinding the clock uh, to give it another go. You could call that recapitulating. Okay. Uh, so the, the story of Adam, the story of Israel. Right. When we've read Luke, who's noticed Adam in what we've read so far in Luke? Anybody read, anybody read Adam's name anywhere in Luke recently? Genealogy. Okay, so in Luke, the end of Luke 3, uh, you've got all that long list of names. I had it reported secondhand that Gemma, Gemma landed for this twice. <laughs> and uh, it... Uh, You've got the story of uh, the story of Jesus' uh, baptism uh, in Luke. Very interesting the way it's sandwiched together. Um, so you've got the story of Jesus' baptism. Then you've got his family history rewinding all that stuff that we find tedious, and you get back to the son of Adam, the son of God. And then you, you head into Jesus' temptation. Um, what was Adam called to be? What was the idea? We, have, we just get such a glimpse of it in Genesis because by the end of chapter 3 it's all gone horribly wrong. What was the intention for Adam? To rule over and look after God's creation, but maybe, arguably, even prior to that? Right, right. And you've got that lovely picture in the beginning of Genesis 3 about enjoying the fellowship with God. And <coughs> uh, that was what human beings were designed for. Now, what we've had hinted at already about, uh, about the relationship of Jesus to his father is that Jesus is going to, uh, on our behalf, revisit that and get it right. That relationship with the father, he's going to get right. What, so secondly, he revisits the story of Israel uh, turn, to, turn to your neighbor and come up with two things that you think were key purposes for Israel.
Okay. Joni family. Joni family. One key purpose for Israel. To help people, okay? To be a blessing, okay? To receive God's blessing, to share God's blessing. Brilliant. Uh, another key purpose for Israel. Wow. How were they how particularly were they charged with doing that? Right. Okay. Okay. So they were entrusted with the presence of God in their midst. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. So ark tabernacle followed by temple. Okay. Home for the presence of God. Anything else? Right. Okay. So it carries on from blessed to be a blessing. The blessing was not just supposed to come to, to fill them up and for them to get fat, fat and greedy. It was supposed to overflow. Uh, yes, Holly. Perfect, but that was their purpose. And for that purpose, God gave the law to show what living for God was meant to to look like. Brilliant. Uh, And there are some some definite parts, um, some of the ways Matthew tells the story of Jesus, even to saying um, there's a a phrase when um, Jesus uh, is a refugee in which country? Egypt. Egypt. And Matthew quotes, out of Egypt, I called my son. It's like even physically in his history, he has to go through some of those steps. And uh, Char reminded us of the plagues and God calling his son out of Egypt. So there are even some physical um, parts of the story uh, that, uh, that represent the same thing. Um, I just talked about Jesus' baptism, and then he goes after the baptism to be tempted, tested, where? In the wilderness. How long does he spend in the wilderness? 40 days. Who else do you know in the wilderness? 40 years. Uh, When Israel was in the wilderness, 40 years. Uh, did everything go smoothly? What happened in the, in the wilderness with Israel? Rebellion. Disbelief. Grumbling. Um, they got hungry at one point. And were they good-tempered about it? 
they absolutely grumbled, didn't they? And then finally God gave them, uh, gave them manna, but they were grumbled. They grumbled. So Jesus facing the wilderness, facing temptation. Actually, there's even something about being hungry. Right. Right. Brilliant. I hadn't spotted that one. Yeah. Yeah. So this revisiting the story of the past, but getting it right. So we're getting a picture of Jesus being uh, the obedient, faithful, the human being designed for God's pleasure, designed to be that son, enjoying the purpose of God. And he's come to show us what God's like. And he's come to show us how we can be. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld his glory. But in his glory, he also chose to be as he'd been from all eternity to be that perfect son. What does a perfect son do? He obeys and honors his father. He's about his father's glory. That's quite cool, isn't it? Okay, next slide. Oh, let's, let's read this out. The father-son relationship in the Old Testament suggests a biblical model for conceiving a relationship at the same time characterized by equality and obedience, the relationship that exists between a father and a son. In biblical anthropology, that's in the Bible's understanding of human beings and how we're meant to be, a son is at once like his father as his image. And uh, Adam had a son in his image. And he's like his father as his image and the heir, but he's also called to submit to his father's will. Wow. That blew my mind. Uh, and we'll see this through the story of Jesus. Can you think of uh, can you think of occasions when Jesus was obedient to his Father? Give us concrete examples. Turn to your neighbour and give some concrete examples. <laughs>
Okay. I'm looking over at uh, that, the, the far reaches of the room. R- Ruti, your group, give us an example. Gethsemane, yeah. Right, so faced, we know, we know the end of the story. We know that um, Jesus' ultimate obedience to his father is going to the cross. And we, we have that intimate picture of him in the garden uh, where he's praying and he's being deserted by his friends. And there's a real battle going on. And he ends up, he, he asks God to take the cup away from him. Cup is the image of suffering. It's the idea of, of drinking, um, drinking uh, bitter wine is an image of suffering. And he asks God to take this, uh, this destiny away from him. And, and that's a real request um, because what he's got to do is um, so huge. But he finishes up saying, not what I want, but what you want. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> Remind us. (laughs) 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 Okay. Next slide, I think. Yeah. If we really believe in any sense in the incarnation of the word, we're bound to take seriously... The flesh that the word became. So looking at the life of Jesus, uh, what does that look like? Uh, What did he do? What did he say? What was he? Carry on. Okay. So next section is um, the heading I was given. Jesus establishes, announces, and demonstrates the kingdom of God and opens heaven. Um, Okay. So... When Jesus bursts on the scene, uh, who, somebody prepared the way for, for him. John the Baptist. Okay. And um, what was John's key message? <coughs> Repent. Repent and prepare the way. The, prepare the way of who? The Lord. Woo. Woo. I wonder what they were expecting when he said, prepare the way of the Lord. And Jesus came, and in, uh, it's Matthew, I think, where Jesus' uh, first message is exactly the same as, um, uh, is exactly the same as, uh, as John's. Repent uh, for the king, no, perhaps it's not Matthew, perhaps it's Luke. Uh, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does repent mean? Turn around. So you're turning around to Eddie. Is that is that repenting? It's, more, it's almost 
Turning back, starting again, living a fresh life. Yeah. Um, This is what uh, you'll notice quite a few slides from N.T. Wright. I hold my hand up as uh, being quite, and I I know I'm in good company with reading lots of Tom Wright because I know know Charles does. And I make Caroline read him as well. Um, Jesus was summoning his hearers to give up their whole way of life, to give up their national and social agendas, and to trust him for a different agenda, a different set of goals. This, of course, included a change of heart, but went far beyond it. Um, Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. Kingdom of God is at hand. And we live in the United Kingdom. Kingdom is a place where there is a king, a monarch. Okay. And uh, in the story of Israel... Uh, When they first wanted a king, what happened? Was that a great idea when they were asked when they asked to have a king? No. Why was it not a great idea? Because they were refusing God's rule over them, and they wanted a man instead. Okay. God was always the ultimate king. So if there was a human king, it was always the way of understanding that beyond a human king. There is God who is the rightful king. Um, So actually they weren't intended to have uh, a human king. They were intended to uh, be under direct rule from God. Okay. In Jewish history, um, what had gone badly wrong in uh, in about um, 597 when there was a king in Jerusalem... Uh, what disaster happened? Holly? I'm actually thinking after that. Carted off. To Babylon and all that. Exiled. Exiled, yeah. Uh, so... In Jewish history, there'd been various disasters, but the the key one was when their last king was captured, led away, bad things happened to him. His sons were killed under his eyes, very gory bits in the Old Testament. He, he was forced to watch his sons being killed, and then, this is, this is horrible, his eyes were gouged out. So the last thing he ever saw was the death of his heirs, and the kingdom fell, the monarchy fell. And you'll remember that they came back eventually. Israel was resettled eventually. There, you know, there is a Jewish people back in Israel now. Um, but there's a real sense in which the, the, the king has not been restored, they're living under pagan, uh, pagan uh, overlords and, and have been for hundreds of years. Um, so they haven't got that sense of 
who they're really called to be. They haven't got that sense of having a godly ruler who is the deputy for, for God. And now the message is the kingdom of God is at hand. There's always been a hope and an expectation. The prophets have, have talked about it. It's been a dream and a vision of what restored national life would look like. And there have been all kinds of ideas. And uh, one, one thing, these things are, are debated. People are trying to dig in and work out what, what really is the background to the first century. Um, there, there is quite a lot of debate. Um, but what, uh, what Tom Wright says is that there were three competing uh, ideas going on. There was the compromise way. The compromise way under King Herod. King Herod is uh, the, the, the ruler. King Herod is rebuilding the temple. King Herod has got his faults and he's uh, a bit of a collaborator with the Romans. He's in place because, by Roman permission. Um, so he's certainly not that ideal godly ruler but he's kind of the compromised position. So there's one lot that the status quo is follow King Herod, King Herod. Okay. Uh, the um, celebration of discipline answer is uh, withdraw, solitude, separate yourself, come apart, be a community in the desert, Qumran the Essenes, uh, don't have anything to do with any of that. The kingdom of God is about going deep and being separate. The activist answer was the weapons answer was the zealots. We're going to have the kingdom of God and it comes when we take over. Three different answers, all looking for a kingdom. And now Jesus comes in. Does he want any of those answers? No, he doesn't. He's got something far more radical. And, and Tom Wright suggests that when he's talking about repentance, when he's talking about changing radically, that isn't only individual and personal it's not about stop those bad habits, Peter. Don't be so lazy in your retirement. <laughs> it's not about what have I done. It's about what have we done. Where have we gone wrong as a nation? And what, what Tom Wright is suggesting is that repentance means getting the nation back on track. And again, Benga, I, I feel like when I, I've learned a bit about community um, uh, mindset and culture from being in Africa, that actually that gives us a different insight that, that it's not just about me in my small corner, but it's about what, uh, what is God's agenda. So uh, what he's suggesting is that Jesus coming in 
uh, with God's agenda is complete and radical and going to change the nation. Jesus lives the um, Jesus, Jesus lives the kingdom. Uh, how does Jesus How does Jesus demonstrate the kingdom? Jesus demonstrates the kingdom. I want to suggest by uh, by healing, by teaching, and by uh, by huge uh, encounters. What's the next? Uh, Line. Yes, here we go. So, what um, uh, what what Jesus is uh, is believing is in recapitulating Israel and coming in as uh, how Israel's always meant to be, and stepping up to announce that God is going to do what Israel's always been meant to meant to do. He believes that the Creator God had purposed from the beginning to address and deal with the problems within His creation through Israel. Israel was not just to be an example of a nation under God, but to be the means by which they'd be saved. Carry on. Second, Jesus believes that this vocation will be accomplished through Israel's history, reaching a great moment of climax in which Israel herself would be saved from her enemies and through which the creator God, the covenant God, would at last bring his love and justice, his mercy and truth to bear upon the whole world, bringing renewal and healing to all creation. So in Jesus' life, we then see a massive outbreak of healing, healing all over the place. And it's a sign of the kingdom. Um, We see... Uh, we see encounters. Uh, we see encounters uh, with demons. We see encounters with death. And we see encounters with, I was trying to make them all Ds. Um, so I found a posh word for opponents. <laughs> we see uh, encounters with demons, encounters with death, and in encounters with denigrators, people who would push <laughs> Jesus down, people who criticized Jesus all the time uh, for, for what, was, uh, what he was doing. Ah. Uh, and pra- perhaps we could just have a quick look at John chapter 5. Uh, John chapter 5, and uh, so at the beginning of John chapter 5, Jesus uh, meets somebody who needs healing. He's someone who's been lying around for 38 years. Craig, how old are you? 19. Double your your life. Right. Double your lifetime. All you've done is um, beg, and you've lain around, and there's been some story that there's some way of getting some healing and you're lolloping around, uh, waiting aimlessly, helplessly. And Jesus comes and heals this man and transforms his life. And he gets up and he walks. Um, that's, that's power. Uh, that's authority. That's transformation. Um, you'd think it was good news. 
You'd think it was good news. Put your hand up if you think that's good news, someone that's lolloped around for 38 years. Uh, but there are people who don't think it's good news. There are also always people who, um, who don't like it. And um, they picked up on the fact that he was, um, he was doing it on the wrong day, for goodness sake. Uh, and Jesus answers in, con- in conjunction with his father. He says, my father is working until now and I am working. He says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So so Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son. And shows him all that he himself is doing. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, so that all may honor the son, just as all may honor the father. Jesus is obeying the Father completely, is only doing what the Father wants, and yet not everybody wants it. Not everybody wants it at all. They criticize him. Jesus heals people by touching. Um, in, their, in, in their culture, that was supposed to be, uh, that was a bad thing to do because you were meant to be, be pure. Uh, you think about how people... Uh, wouldn't touch people with HIV. Some of you might remember that uh, Princess Diana made a great impact by touching somebody with HIV to take the stigma away. Um, with Jesus, it's far, it goes far deeper than that. Um, if, uh, if I've got something nasty uh, and I, I touch Christy with it, Christy's afraid he might get it. But uh, in Jesus, Jesus had the power and the purity within him. And it was Jesus' power and purity that he shared with the one who needed it uh, that transformed them. The kingdom had come. Transformation was radically happening. It even happened with death. There was a young man who died and was being carried out. Uh, His mother was a widow. Imagine what a pickle she'd be in with her son dead. Jesus touches the coffin. Um, All kinds of bad stuff could come from coffins. But from Jesus, life flows out of him and the young man sits up and he's raised to life. What is in Jesus touches and transforms people's lives. Jesus makes disciples. How many disciples did he have? He had loads. (laughs) But he had how many many key inner core ones? Twelve. Who he also called apostles. What's the significance of the number twelve? Tribes of Israel. Right. So Jesus is founding a new community. 
He's got 12 key friends, uh, like, like uh, there were 12 key sons of, uh, of Jacob. Jacob, Israel, yeah, Israel, Jacob, yeah. I need to take a breath. Do you think we could put that song on? Yeah. For about the last month, um, as I've been thinking about this, there's been one song that's been particularly on my mind. I don't, know, don't even know if you know it. It's a Stuart Townend one called uh, You're the Word of God the Father. And uh, it's, just, it's just been on my mind the whole time as, as I've been uh, trying to think about this. Thank you, Sally. And uh, we're going to listen to it or join in and sing it and uh, uh, perhaps it will reinforce some of, uh, some of what we're finding. From before the world began Every star and every planet Has been fashioned by your hand All creation holds together By the power of your voice Let the skies declare your glory Let the land and seas rejoice You're the 
God who was there in the beginning, who uh, spoke uh, creation into being, who's become flesh, who's announced the kingdom, uh, who is teaching with authority, uh, who is calling uh, a new community around him, who is healing and transforming lives, and, uh, and who is keeping some very surprising company. Uh, because nobody's excluded. Everybody's in. And of all the things that Jesus gets criticized for, he gets criticized for not going down the narrow understandings that people had had of what God wanted. That was what some of the Sabbath uh, criticism was about. But one of the big things they uh, criticized Jesus for, uh, the in crowd, was the company he kept. Uh, what sort of people were famous for being uh, friends of Jesus? Tax collectors. Why is it so bad to be a tax collector? Because you're like a collaborator, right? And some of it's going in his back pocket quite a lot, probably. Yeah. What other kinds of people that... uh, Children. Yeah, children are not bad people, but in that culture they didn't count. Children are wonderful people. And uh, Jesus uh, made them actually his role models for if you want to follow me, be like a child. Yeah, thanks for that reminder. That's really important. Other, Other people that... Prostitutes, right? Uh, people with a bit of a pe- women with a bit of a, a colourful past. Uh, question: Did uh, did Jesus say that's okay? Just carry on doing what you're doing. No. But uh, so, for example, he met a woman who'd got a whole series of relationships, and he took her seriously. And as he engaged with her, as he taught with her, she realized that he was special. She realized that he was the one that God was always going to, going to uh, send. She, she, didn't, she didn't need him to criticize her. She knew uh, the stuff that was wrong in her life. But she discovered in him an acceptance of uh, who she could be. Uh, one of my... Um, uh, Jesus often talked in parables. I have to say, my desert island parable is the lost son, Luke 15. Um, who, Craig, do you know the story of the lost son? Would you like us to tell you the story of the lost son? Okay. Uh, how many sons in this family? Two. Two. Uh, which one was the uh, dodgy character? Younger. Uh, how did he offend his father? Taking his inheritance. If if uh, if Christie says if Christie says to Rob, I'll have my inheritance now. Thank you very much. It's like saying, don't bother living the rest of your life. We'll just imagine you're dead. You don't need anything anymore. I will have it. Uh, he took the money and what did he do with it? He invested it wisely. No, he squandered it partying, bad living, um, inevitable result, broke, ran out of money, uh, tried to get a job, found a pretty grotty job, finally realized 
back home if he's got the guts to say sorry. Can't expect to be welcomed home as a son. He's done that, lost his chance, he thinks. Uh, But he uh, might get a job. Better pay back there. So maybe he could crawl home, tail between his legs, and say, Dad, I'll do anything, give me a job. And to his surprise, I mean, I, I, I don't think my dad would buy it very much. If I, my, I've, I've put my dad in some difficult situations when I've, when I've needed a bit of help with accommodation from time to time, maybe even recently. Um, <laughs> Uh, but to his surprise, instead of his dad saying, I told you not to, blah, 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 blah. I told you, what do you think you've been doing? You've disgraced us. Instead of doing that, his father... <laughs> do you do hugs, Craig? Yeah. Right, stand up, Craig. <laughs> his father... I can't wait! <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's you! Not that I'm saying you're a bad guy, right? (laughs) Just that you were the one who maybe hadn't seen that that explanation before. (laughs) And that was the story that Jesus told to explain why he didn't leave anybody out. And of course he was saying that the Father has always got a welcome. There's always the welcome home. Jesus used stories to get his message across, uh, but he was facing all this, uh, all this, all this difficulty. And there's a very, uh, there's a very telling story in Mark chapter 12. Nowhere near as emotional in a good way as that one, which always gets to me, <laughs> always. Um, it's the story in Mark chapter 12 that in my Bible is called the parable of the tenants. Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence round it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. And he still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir with an H, you know, this is the one who's going to get the money when, he, when, he's, done, when he's dead. Come. Let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Jesus told that story when his denigrators, his opponents, his enemies were crowding in on him. And uh, he knew that he was going to come to a sticky end. He'd been warning his disciples. He'd been warning his friends. 
that uh, he was going to be handed over and betrayed and mocked and tortured and put to death and the third day rise again. And they understood most of it and they didn't have a clue what and the third day rise again meant. Uh, But he tells this story directly to his opponents. Now, for us, this might be in a kind of code, but depending on how much of the Old Testament you know, you might be able to decode some of it. So does anybody know a story in uh, one of the prophets that begins, A Man Planted a Vineyard? No, you don't. Well, there's a story in Isaiah chapter 5 about a man planted a vineyard. And in this code, what does the vineyard stand for? Israel. Okay. So in the story in Isaiah chapter 5, a man planted a vineyard... Uh, And he dug it and cleared it of stones and he planted it with choice vines and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And and what am I going to do? I've dug my allotment and I thought there were going to be beans, but it's rubbish. Am I going to wait and use that ground up uh, when it's producing nettles and thorns? Am I just going to leave them there? Andy, what do you do on your allotment? Yeah, you get root and branch, you dig it up, you throw out the, the brambles, you throw out the nettles. Uh, it's, it's a story about judgment. It's a story about I'm expecting to see life. I'm expecting to see fruit. I'm expecting to see a crop. But there's going to be judgment. There, there, is, there is no way out. And Jesus is telling the same story. But this time, he's emphasizing how wicked are the people who are in charge of the vineyard, who stands for, the vineyard stands for Israel, right? So, you know, here are the leaders of Israel, and he's telling a story about wicked people in charge of the vineyard. Ooh, a bit pointed that. And uh, the owner has sent a string of people to warn. And what have they done? Beaten them up, killed them. So finally comes the beloved son. And what's going to happen to him? They're going to kill him. And it's going to lead to judgment. That's the story that he tells. Jesus, uh, and that, that story is probably one of, the, uh, one of the last. It's told in Mark chapter 12, and it's probably one of the triggers uh, as Jesus' fate is going downhill, as Jesus uh, is inevitably going to his destruction. And uh, Jesus has been warning his uh, Jesus has been warning his friends about his death, 
Uh, and as I said, they didn't, uh, they, they didn't get the bit about on the third day, rise, rise again. Uh, but if they hadn't got the warnings, uh, something very dramatic that he did explained it very clearly to them. Uh, it was the season of Passover. Who, who's been here and celebrated Passover? Okay, Grace, tell us what Passover's about. Passover meal, too. And, and to remember... Okay, but in the past, in Jewish... In Jewish history, what would Passover have celebrated? Sorry, I'm putting you on the spot. Get some help from your family. Being ready to leave Egypt. And God's promise to take them to the promised land. Because what, what were the bad things that were happening in Egypt? Slavery. And that night, uh, we talked about frogs, we talked about hail, we talked about uh, disaster happening, and we talked about death of the firstborn. That night, God had been, was going to come and kill the Egyptian uh, firstborn sons, and he was going to keep safe his people. And Passover was the, uh, the memory of that. Um, I don't know whether Gemma's ever been there, but there was um, when I, when I was in Stanford and in Grace with the Methodist Church on Maundy Thursday, which is when's Maundy Thursday? Before Day before Good Friday, uh, and I would always get the families uh, and the children together, and we would have a meal. And I can remember a time when Johnny was quite little, and uh, we we gathered and we would have a, a meal, kind of. Uh, having, having some roast lamb, uh, gathering around the table, behaving like Jesus' disciples, and then seeing what Jesus did and how he changed it. Because on that traditional uh, time, when they would have been celebrating God's freedom in the past, they'd have been celebrating God saving them from death, They'd have been celebrating being God's people and being taken to a different level of being God's people, being set free. And Jesus uh, celebrates what should have been a well-organized, well-trodden path, and suddenly he changes the script. Um, I'm going I'm to read you. Uh, I'm going I'm to read this bit. Um, Again, it's from from Tom Wright. He'd come into town, and all of you went along, not just for the ride, but because you thought that this time it was going to happen. And he seemed to think so too. He seemed excited and strangely troubled as well. He'd gone into the temple and done something you'd never expected, attacked the animal sellers and the money changers, stopped the whole system functioning for a few minutes. It seemed as though he wanted to say this. This whole thing is out of line. It isn't doing what God wanted it to. And God is going to get rid of it. But how could he have meant that? 
What could he think that God would put in its place? A few nights camping out in the cold spring air at Bethany. Back into the city by day. Jesus teaching crowds, excited crowds. More and more of them as the city got fuller and fuller of pilgrims. All there for the feast, of course. The freedom party. The kingdom party. God had set us free from Egypt. Now it was time for him to set us free from Rome. And of course, you all thought Jesus would be the king who would do it. He would suddenly give the signal and you'd be ready to act. And so would thousands of others. The Roman guards would be nervous. What better time than Passover for the great bid for freedom. And so they come together and they suddenly realize that things are changing. Jesus was speaking. He was going to say the words the head of the family always said. You know them by heart. Your father had said them year after year. The bread that our fathers ate when they came out of the land of Egypt. The cup to life. The cup to freedom. But just a minute. What's he doing? He's changed it. Take this bread and eat it. It is my body. It is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The world turned upside down. Everybody was staring. You were convinced he'd gone over the top this time. This was the Pesach meal. The meal that said, you know, the Egypt stuff, the freedom stuff. How could it be about Jesus' body? And why should we do this in remembrance of him? What did that? mean you were still buzzing about this when the cup came round there are so many cups that are Pesach that afterwards nobody could remember which one it was but you never forget what happened again the familiar words and Jesus turned them inside out drink this all of you this is my blood of the new covenant it is shed for you and for many so that sins may be forgiven. This was too much. His blood. Everybody knows Jews don't drink blood. And a new covenant, sins forgiven. Everybody knew, of course, that the prophets had promised that God would eventually make a new covenant with Israel. His Everybody knew that would be when he would finally forgive Israel's sins once and for all, redeeming them from all their troubles and giving them, giving them their freedom. That was what Passover was looking forward to. But somehow the future seemed to have arrived here and now in the present. And there you were, sleepy with food and wine, quite unready for, for it. And how could all this have anything to do with Jesus' blood? Jesus knew he was going to die. And Jesus knew why he was going to die. Jesus was going to die to renew the covenant finally, decisively. Uh, We know what happened. He was uh, handed over, he was betrayed, he was rejected, he was handed over. 
He found himself being dressed by soldiers and mocked, uh, put, put mock kingly robes to be tortured, a crown of thorns on his head to hurt him and mock him. And uh, soldiers who uh, were about to take him to his death, who thought that they'd have a bit of fun. And then they stripped him and they took him and they crucified him between two criminals, accused of leading the people astray, probably understood as a, as a rebel. Um, when all he'd done was in obedience to his father. And on the cross, when he was dying, he cried out in anguish, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only time he didn't call God his father, the only time he was separate from his father and this death he was dying as he recapitulated the way of Adam and the way of Israel. This obedience that he was giving was completely separating him from his father. He had raised people to life. He had the power within him to give life. He had... Uh, when he had raised his friend Lazarus to, to life, he had said, I am the resurrection and the one who had creation and life within him submitted to death. He cried out for forgiveness for those who tortured him. And he finally said... It's finished! The whole struggle was over. It didn't just mean I'm dying. Because I've done it. I've completed the task that the Father's given me. I've offered my blood. The blood that is the new covenant. In the Old Testament, when... Uh, when God made a covenant with Abraham, he slaughtered an animal and they walked between it together. When the Passover lamb was sacrificed as a sign of the freedom, they dabbed the blood over the doorposts and Jesus gave his blood. When Moses made covenant with the people, he slaughtered animals and he sprinkled it over the people as a sign that God had accepted the sacrifice. And all that was done. It's finished. And they buried him and there was no doubt that he was dead. Don't let anybody tell you. Don't let anybody tell you that it's uh, some, some kind of um, deception, that he was just a bit faint. <laughs> All that he'd, he'd gone through, he was dead, he was buried. 
And the women on the third day, the women, they came and looked for the place where the rich man had left, a place of honour for his, the body of his friend. And the women discovered things not quite as they should have been. And there was a tomb, but instead of being sealed up so that a putrefying body began, uh, was sealed away from them and kept safe, the stone had been rolled away. And one of the stories, the story that John tells us, which uh, just has such a, such a mark of, uh, of being a, 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 an eyewitness account. The women come, they're scared stiff, um, they, they, they run away, they go back and tell the disciples, come and help us. Uh, the, 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 the tomb is empty. Peter and John run. John's the young one, he gets there first. Peter catches up, puffed out, goes in, and he looks in, and there is no body in this tomb. What what is left is the wrappings that have wrapped round Jesus, and they've collapsed because the body hasn't been stolen, hasn't been eaten by animals. The wrappings are still there, but there's nothing for them to wrap. And the the tomb is empty. They don't know what to make of it either. Mary is crying because how can you dishonor my, my, my friend's been through so much. He's been mocked. He's been crucified. He's been buried and can't you even leave him in peace now that he's dead? Somebody comes along and speaks her name. And when the word speaks, (laughs) you know who's speaking when your friend says your name. You know who it is. And she turns to him and she says, Master! It's you. And in the evening, they're scared stiff. They meet together. They are afraid of the people who've put Jesus to death. They're afraid of being betrayed. They're afraid of the same, of the same fate. They lock the doors to keep betrayers out. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And when he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he'd said this, he breathed on them and he said, receive 
the Holy Spirit. Jesus has made a new covenant. We were made to be reconciled with the Father. And Jesus comes and says, peace. He comes and says, you belong. It's done. Peace. And he shows them why. He shows them why the peace is there. Because there are the marks of the covenant. When you make a covenant, you make a sign in the flesh. Abraham had a very intimate sign in his flesh. And so did all his male descendants. There is a fleshly sign for a covenant. Jesus says it's done. I've done the whole thing. There is restoration. You are my family. You are God's family. And now like I was sent into the world, so you are being sent into the world. And so, my friends... Are we? We just wanted to share um, a story that we heard yesterday. Um, do you know Paul Lunsworth from Kohila? And he told us a story yesterday about um, this is just like Jesus is still doing it, <laughs> and we are sent. And he, um, he was with a guy called Alex who does um, ministry work and witnessing on the streets. And they went and they met this guy who was um, not totally blind but virtually blind. And they prayed for him and he, was, he could see. He came to faith and um, they baptised him in the canal in Hackney um, on Friday. So he was healed, saved and um, baptised on Friday. And they've got a video of this guy getting baptised and, you know, declaring the name of Jesus. So, um, yeah, I kind of felt challenged this morning that I wasn't as excited by that as I should be because we're still called to that, you know, the... The death that comes to life when Jesus is around. So, yeah. So it's a great, great story. Thank you. Rosemary, that was incredible. Really, really true.